Last week I uh, commented a little bit about uh, case 12 in the uh, Book of Serenity, one of the three main sources of uh, Zen koans and parables that we use for studying how to integrate different points of view through dialogue and experience. I'm going to read the case one more time. Daizeng asked Suishan, where do you come from? Suishan said, from the south. Daizeng said, how is Buddhism in the south these days? Suishan said, there's extensive discussion. Daizeng said, how can that compare to me here planting the fields and making rice to eat? Suishan said, what can you do about the world? Daizeng said, what do you call the world? This is quite a wonderful dialogue. I enjoy it a lot uh, because uh, it's about uh, two people challenging each other with different points of view. So uh, one of the most important things I think about uh, Zen practice is what's our point of view? How do we see? How do we know when we're seeing clearly? So, you know, we're all here students of Milgans. I mean, I'm the same as you, you know, we're all students of Milgans. So one of the things I enjoy most about uh, practicing together and practicing with Milgan is he's always looking at many points of view. And uh, it helps us get unstuck if we get a little too one-sided. So I know that helps me a lot. And um, it's interesting. I first uh, began to learn about different points of view when I studied anthropology at Berkeley. Uh, Laura Nader, who was Ralph Nader's sister, was a very famous anthropologist. And I had the good fortune of studying with her. And it's the first time I ever thought there was another point of view besides an American one. <laughs> because I didn't know other cultures even lived differently than we live. So that was many years of study, and that was very interesting. I was very excited about that. Then I fell in backwards to uh, the Berkeley Zen Center, and that was really a different point of view. Oh my goodness, a point of view that was outside of words. Well, what's that? <coughs> then I learned about something called Gestalt, and Gestalt therapy is based on actually the uh, theories of Kurt Lewin, who is a perceptual psychologist. And Kurt Lewin discovered that you can either see my finger or you can see my nose. But your actual physical apparatus of your eyes can't see both at the same time. You can see, so you can see what he called the foreground, my finger, or you can see the background. And although it may even look to you like you're seeing both at the same time, What's really going on is you're shuttling back and forth between what's in the foreground and what's in the background. And if you study yourself or you, you are close to people, you'll see that some people tend to see foreground more easily. So then they have to work a little harder to see background. Some people see background a little more easily. 
and so they have to work a little harder to seek foreground. So we all tend to grow up a little bit seeing one more easily than, than the other. So our point of view is often colored by uh, many things, by our culture, by our education, by our own thoughts or emotional style, you know. So Zen says, well, whatever it's colored by tends to contribute to uh, your believing in it and thinking it's right, maybe, or it's uh, correct because it's your own. But that doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it limited. My uh, mentor in um, organizational life and consulting uh, used to always say, everybody is right. So we'd go into these places where everybody had huge problems. They were just ridiculously huge problems running large organizations. They were all at each other's throat. And we had some ways we would sit them down and teach them that everybody's point of view was correct. And, and it didn't take them long but before they understood everybody's point of view is correct because it's their point of view. <laughs> of course it's correct. It's how they see the world. And you can't have a conversation with somebody really unless you can really appreciate and let them know that you see and appreciate their point of view. Uh, it's particularly hard in Sangha life. That's one of the wonderful things about Sangha life is we make a special effort to uh, appreciate and see everybody's point of view. Um, so oftentimes, uh, uh, Sangha like ours is so healthy because everybody is willing to say, oh, uh, I see this one way and somebody else might say I see it differently and then we can talk about it and decide, well, what would work best for all of us together. So there's a wonderful story that I'm sure uh, you all have heard in the child illustration version or the adult story, but I found a poem of it that I had never heard before that was written by a guy named John Godfrey Sachs, who apparently lived from 1816 to 1887. And this uh, predates, uh, usually this tale is told as an Indian story, and it's the blind man and the elephant. Uh, now, uh, just to digress, my favorite story as a child was The Four Mice in the Barn. Are any of you old enough to remember The Four Mice in the Barn? Four mice live in a barn, and one lives is Top Mouse, lives in the top rafters, and one is Rear Mouse, he lives in the rear of the barn, and one is Side Mouse, who lives in the side, and one is Front Mouse. And they all get into an argument about what a cow looks like, <laughs> because the cow lives in the barn. So Top Mouse, of course, draws his little picture of the cow, and it looks like the cow from the top. And Side Mouse draws it from the side with the udders, and Front Mouse draws the face, and you know. So I always loved that. I thought that's so interesting to me, you know, these different mice, each living in a different place of the barn, and how, how can they, and then they, of course, took their little tour around the barn, and they could see. That how, what each one was, and then they said, oh, we're all correct, but not the whole story. Now, 
I think probably that childhood tale was a takeoff. <coughs> As fables go, you know, they come from many sources. Um, the blind man and the elephant, which certainly predates it. So here's this guy's version of this, and it's in poem form, which I, I really like. So instead of telling the tale, he wrote the poem. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling the tusk, cried, Ho, what have we here, so very round and smooth and sharp? To me tis mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal, and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up he spake. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said, E'en the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can, this marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope, than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was party in the right, and all were in the wrong. examine your own background as a child, you'll see how often difficulties in your own family were because somebody felt they were right. And how many times uh, in our own significant relationships with children, with family, with parents, with friends, do we maybe think we're right. Well, we may be, but we're also wrong. So Zen is a practice, a very subtle practice, of catching yourself wanting to take 
your own point of view. It's also a practice, like Suzuki Roshi said, of believing in nothing, which is a way of saying, taking no particular point of view. Now that's very spacious. It's very spacious. If you take no particular point of view, what's left? Only what is. Only what is arising. Only what's in front of your nose this moment. In the um, dialogue of uh, that I presented the case, when he says, Zhang says, where do you come from? He's asking a very important question. He's saying, are you attached to your point of view? Or how are you seeing? How clear do you see the water in the well? And how deeply do you see the water in the well? Do you see the moon light reflected in the water of the well? Of course, that's a question Dogen asked. You see the moon in a dewdrop. Mushin. Mushin means no mind. What is Mushin? What's the point of view of everything simultaneously in the present moment? What's the point of view beyond the foreground and the background? What's the point of view beyond your cultural conditioning? What's the point of view beyond Zen? This is a very important question. It's a very difficult question. It's very hard for us to even ask ourselves the question sometimes. Sometimes, you notice if you're a parent with a two-year-old or a 12-year-old or an 18-year-old, you have to take a point of view. Just have to, or things stop working. <laughs> Everything falls apart if you don't take a point of view. But if you're open to all points of view, which point do you take? I think this is a very good question. I think I'll stop here and entertain a few questions or comments if you have some.
move things forward and getting, getting uh, caught up in the energy of that, the energy of, of my list of things to do. Another difficulty I have is uh, the question I think Steve's phrased before, uh, you know, um, who are you if not this opinion? You know, these, these preferences. Fear of letting go of that, which creates that difficulty in asking the question. It's a larger question. Stuff that got brought up. Thank you for letting us know how some bit of experience around that. Sometimes, in response to both of you, I would say, one difficulty we have in this day and age is we live too fast. I mean, I do too. But it's very hard to say, well, maybe before we get too hopped up about what color the hat is, we ought to ask those people on the other side of the field, why the heck do they believe it's red? Because we saw it was blue. So we could say, well, why the heck do you believe it's red? They could say, because we saw it's red. And then we could say, that's impossible, we saw it's blue. Well, they maybe they'll invite us over to their side of the field to take a peek, you know, right? Or we could invite them over to our backyard to say, hey, take a peek at the hat. But you know what happens in reality, don't you? Then the guy walks back and he turns the hat around, or he walks back the other way. <laughs> then you go, wait a minute, he just changed hats. He couldn't possibly have a hat that's too colored, he just changed hats, right? It, it's, this is like an endless story. And this is why the Middle East is falling apart. This is why Africa's falling apart. This is why Asia's falling apart. This is why the world is falling apart. You know, uh, is everybody, I was up with some hippies in Mendocino yesterday who are certain that Bush's brother who runs the security agency had explosive charges set in the World Trade Center and they've given me the video that's going around about why it's a conspiracy. We're still not done with Kennedy dying in 62. So uh, it's very interesting, you know. And, and what wasn't, was interesting was not that they had the point of view. It was the certainty about the point of view. 
It's very hard to take a stand and stay open. Uh, if any of you sail, I, I'm a sailor, so I grew up sailing. In sail, you have your hand on a tiller, you can take a point of view that I, relative to the wind, I'm going to sail in a certain direction. But it's always knowing that the wind is going to change. You, you don't get out of that. Now, if you're a good sailor, you know how it's going to change and when, and you can read the clouds and use that. But you don't have a chance against the wind. The wind wins. You know, nature wins. Life wins. We are going to die. We were born. You didn't get to vote. You didn't get. To, you don't get to vote on dying. You don't get to vote on living. You get to vote on how you drink your cup of tea. You get to vote on how you bow to your cushion. You get to vote on how entrenched you are in your points of view. You get to vote as president of some country that pollutes the world, whether you want to listen to feedback from anybody or not. That wasn't a political comment. I would never dare make a political comment as part of the Dharma. Some people don't listen. Some people don't respect that everybody, for their own reasons, sees something a certain way. And if we don't invite somebody from the field over to our field, and if we don't go over to their field, we can never really share in what we're seeing. So the first step in making peace in the world and in our personal lives and in our families and our workplaces and our sanghas is to always make sure that everybody's point of view is well seen so that everybody has a good feeling of uh, being together in a circle. So uh, thank you for listening. Oh.